If you all have uh, Bibles, if you could open them up to Malachi 2, and if you have a placeholder, a way to put your finger uh, in a different place, please uh, open up to Matthew 19 as well. So Malachi 2 and Matthew 19 are going to be the places we're going to go, um, and Genesis, but there's so much jumping around. I particularly want you guys to, uh, maybe even more important is, is Matthew 19. Um, so if you can only choose one, go ahead and go to Matthew 19. <clears throat> For the past two weeks, I've been trying to persuade you from the Word of God that human sexuality is so much more glorious and greater and weightier than, than our world conceives it and than we often conceive of it. That in, that in creating man and woman as sexual beings, the Lord wanted to create something beautiful and powerful and life-defining to explain who he was to us and what we mean to him and, and also how we are to think of him and respond to him. And so when he created the first man and the first woman, he created them to come together in every way, in spirit, mind, and body. The two would become one. Even their bodies in their sexual design were meant to come together as one in tenderness and vulnerability and enjoyment. And, and grounding this oneness, establishing the oneness and sustaining and protecting and nourishing the oneness was to be faithfulness. The faithfulness of a man to his bride and she to him all life long. And marriage was God's intention, not just for their good experience with each other, though of course it was that. It was his intention at creation that in, in that wonderful experience, marriage would be a visible way for them to see and experience something of the invisible God and his heart for them. Marriage would be a visible way for them to understand better the invisible God and his heart for them. With that in mind, hear again Paul's words in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, and now Paul is quoting the creation narrative, he's quoting Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And in case there was no mistaking all the allusions to Christ and his church, Paul makes it crystal clear. He says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In other words, marriage, Paul says, human marriage is meant to be a living poem about the creator and his creation, about God and his people, 
about Jesus and his bride, the church. And the one flesh covenant of marriage, including its sexual expression, was created by God to tell a story. The story of the son leaving his father to come and lay down his life for the good of his bride, to deliver her, to nourish her, to cherish her, to unite himself to her forever in faithful love. Jesus, uniting himself with his bride, the two becoming one. Doing all this because at his core, he is the very essence of faithful love. And in response to the faithful love of the husband, the wife was to be a picture of God's people, faithfully following their loving Lord as their head. But when that goes wrong, as it has gone wrong, and continues to go wrong ever since our parents' first rebellion. Just as sexuality and marriage were meant to deeply bless us, so now they become means as they go wrong to deeply wound us, deeply grieve us, break us, and hurt us. And last week we saw God's compassion and his zeal swell up and go after the men who were mistreating their wives, women who'd been abandoned by their husbands in Judah. And today I, I want to do a deeper dive into two prominent but related concepts in that passage that, that really affect all of us, directly or indirectly. I'm going to go back to that text and then from that text draw out two particular themes. So this is Malachi 2, 13 through 16. Is the Lord speaking to the men of Judah. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that man covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. We talked last week about what that means in our spiritual life and how God still speaks to or closes his ears to husbands that hurt their wives. But today, I, I want to talk about sort of a, a bit of an excursus. I want to do a deep dive on two particular passages. And through that, ask two big questions. The, the first is, what is this oneness of marriage? What does the Lord mean when he says in verse 15, did he not make them one? Did he not make them one? And then secondly, how should we think about the division of one? That is, when we read in verse 16, the man who divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. I, I want to ask an important question we have to ask. Is every divorce a covering of oneself with violence? 
what legitimate reason might that one that God has made ever be divided, if ever? So what is one flesh? And, and what does it mean? Why would one flesh be divided ever? So let's ask first, what does the Lord mean by one or one flesh? He actually says in Malachi 1, but without a doubt, he is referring to an allusion to Genesis 2, where the Lord says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is what we, Paul quoted in Ephesians 5 a few moments ago. The Lord says they become one flesh. And he says this after creating Adam and Eve and bringing them together. But it's important for us to think about what happened before that. In Genesis 2, the Lord creates Adam. And he gives him a call in his life, work to do, a world to lead and, and fill. And he looks at Adam in love and he says, It is not good for the man to be alone. And I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord literally takes a part of his body and makes a new person out of him. That sounds fantastical and miraculous to our ears, and it is fantastical and miraculous. But it is interesting to note today, this is, this is very brief, that, that we now know that we can take a, a piece of a highly developed animal, and from its genetic material, the smallest cell, we can make a new animal, just like that animal. Of course, the God who created the universe out of nothing didn't have to go into DNA splicing and cloning. He, he could have made Eve out of nothing. But he deliberately chose to create Eve from Adam's body, from Adam's own flesh and bone. He deliberately did that for a reason. And when Adam sees her, he says, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. He knows in his heart that she is from him and she is for him. And in a literal way that has much greater meaning than just literalness, she literally brings back to Adam what God took from him. She completes him. It's a famous movie line that Tom Cruise says to Renee Zellweger, you know, you complete me. But it's a beautiful truth. In the best of cases, in God's intention, that's what he wants for a marriage, that the two would complete each other. That when Eve is brought back to Adam, she brings him much, much more than he had in his own. She not only completes him, but not only returns what he lacks, she brings him something much, much greater than he had before. Because she is a fellow image bearer of God, a co-equal with him. But God has brought together what he had separated. They are together. And now, they're not simply two people hanging out together. They are, God says, one. Genesis says they become one flesh. That Hebrew really almost implies a one person. One person is made out of the two. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 19 when he explains what happens in marriage. He says, after quoting that Genesis 2.24, he says in his own words, they are no longer one, no longer two, but one, as if to just emphasize the whole point. They're no longer two, but one. This is what God does in every marriage between a man and a woman, where they are committed. What happened to Adam and Eve happens again and again, a million times over throughout history. It happened to me. 
and, and, and in a much less perfect way because of our imperfections and sins, I had an experience somewhat similar to how I read Adam's experience. God, God brought my wife into my life and, and she was attractive to me instantly. She felt, something about her just felt like home. I sensed something very familiar to me about her that I didn't sense in others. I could almost have said, she seems like flesh of my flesh. But there was also something about how different she was in me that felt like she was filling a missing piece of who I was. I don't mean that in, in some sort of like self-seeving, she's going to, you know, actualize my life. I, I just meant there was a sense in which she fit me and brought to me things that I, I just basically lacked. She's structured, organized, goal-oriented. She's concrete. She thinks very linearly and logically. I, I don't lean that way. I, I'm all over the place. I'm philosophical and poetic and vision-oriented, big-picture creative. She doesn't lean as much that way. When we walk in love together, we bring to each other what the other lacks. We have a much larger bandwidth. Of course, when we don't walk in love together, as sadly we often don't, those differences God made to complement, they end up hurting and becoming catalysts to be selfish. But that wasn't God's intention. It was God's intention for most men and women, for men and women throughout history, most that he'd called to marriage, to experience this sense of fit, of home, of bringing something that I was missing, but in a way that felt right. Eventually, I did leave my father and my mother, the only family I knew. I was joined to my wife. And according to God's word, we became one flesh. We entered into one new life together, sharing our souls, our minds, our bodies, sharing our home, our time, our sorrows, our joys, our food, our bed. I was no longer to think of my life as my own. It was now her life, and her life was mine. And it has not been easy. We're post-fall married couple. We're not a pre-fall married couple. Marriage has often been hard for us. A lot of hurting, a lot of disappointment, a lot of sinning against each other. But she is mine and I'm hers. We are one. Paul even tells us in Ephesians 5, 28, that, that what I do to my wife, I do to myself. Because her body is my body. Paul says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Before the Lord, we're not two, but we're one. And the stunning, amazing thing is, this is just a hint of how he feels about us. He doesn't look at you and say, you're over there, I'm over here. He says, no, we're one. I'm committed to you forever and ever. And so marriage is a picture of that. And it's what God does. Now this is a duh moment, but it's so important. Marriage, in marriage, God makes the two one. Malachi says, did not he make them one with a portion of his spirit? One fleshness is his idea. A man and a woman find their desires and wisdom and hopefully just the right time to come together and come to an altar and, and be made into one. They both say vows and they're made one. But it's not their vows. It's not the pastor. It's not their, their love for each other that makes them one. It's that God and his Holy Spirit comes, across, comes over that, 
ceremony comes over those vows and he he makes them one marriage is God's doing it is his idea This is important as we think about a, a culture where marriage is being redefined in all kinds of different ways. And we'll see later in Matthew 19, you can't just take marriage and make it do what you want with it because it wasn't your idea. It was his idea. And one of the aspects about this oneness is that, again, this is important to emphasize because we don't want to assume everybody feels this way, but it is to be a permanent, lifelong oneness. We see this right away in Genesis 2.24. Thanks, Jacob. It might win, it might blow again. If anything else like that, you've got, you, you can, I appreciate that. You, you're a kind and good man. <laughs> if this happens over here, it's okay to just let it go. It's, um, we need to go to Clips R Us and get some clips. But right away in Genesis 2.24, something might have sneaked past your radar as it did mine. God says a man leaves his mother and father. What's that mean, that a man leaves his father and mother? Most people think of the process of leaving home. But, but let's think about what that means. It implies that the mother and father have been his lifelong home. Their union never ended. When he leaves, he's leaving a union of a mother and father. They're committed to each other through his whole life. And he goes into another lifelong union. So the oneness is a oneness that means what we would think it means. It doesn't mean two or division. It means union. Furthermore, consider the implications for, for one flesh union in Genesis 2.25, the next verse. A man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. This says another thing about this oneness that God intended for us. To be naked and unashamed speaks to the union of their hearts as well as their bodies. Naked and unashamed means not hiding from one another, not covering themselves from one another, not feeling a need to protect themselves from the other out of fear of who they were or who their spouse was or what might happen to them if they reveal their full selves. It speaks to, in that first creation moment, giving a glad and confident vulnerableness to the other. It communicates transparency and sharing and openness and tenderness and safety. That's both glorious and hopeful for some of us, and it's hard for some of us to hear that, isn't it? And a mixture for many of us of both. But one flesh union is more than just physical. It's the whole person. But listen, and this is really important, it is not... It, it, it is more than physical, but it is not less than physical. One fleshness includes physical union. There is something intentionally physical in those phrases, one flesh, naked, from Genesis 2. In God's design of sexual union, husband and wife come together in a way they do not come together with anyone else I can share my emotions with you, my mind with you. I can even share my food and my home with you. But I must not share my body with you. That belongs only to my wife. In 1 Corinthians 7, in the context of sexual relations, Paul says something really powerful. He tells the men that they do not have authority over their own bodies. Their bodies belong to their wives and vice versa. 
When it comes to my sexuality, it must all belong to Jen and only Jen. She alone has claim over whatever I look at, whatever I desire sexually. I have no right to keep any of it from her. It belongs to her. An implication I believe from this is that my wife should be able to know whenever she wants what I'm doing with my body sexually, including my heart. That part of me belongs uniquely and exclusively to her and for her. And furthermore, we can see marriage as uniquely given to a man and a woman on purpose. We, we don't need to not only look at the clear prohibition in Scripture against homosexuality and bestiality, but the very design of a man and woman's bodies testifies clearly to God's purpose for the union of a man and a woman. Biological design in gender is a very intentional way of God saying, this body belongs with this body. These parts fit and, and make a whole. Many of us struggle with same-sex attraction or have had same-sex experiences. God loves you. God cares about you. He has compassion on you. But he made marriage. We didn't make it. He made sexuality. We didn't make it. Sexual activity is glue for marriage. It is a holy glue for the union of a man and a woman. That's, that's what it's meant to do. What, what, many of us understand this intuitively, that what's so powerful about sexual activity is that it creates emotional bonds that last beyond the physical bond. God designed in his first intention, though much has gone wrong for all of us, God designed sexual pleasures to build emotions, and even build into our conscience this sense of mutual belonging. Sexual activity has a unifying purpose because it is supposed to help reinforce, build, establish, sustain, protect union, one flesh union. It's holy glue meant to bond our souls. This is why a, a man and a woman can feel both a great drawing towards each other after they've engaged with a, a physical sexual activity before marriage. They can start to feel like they belong to each other, that they own each other, or they can also feel a great sense of guilt and or repulsion after engaging with someone sexually that's not their mate. There can be this innate sense of, I feel like I belong to you now, or this other innate sense of, oh no, I don't want to belong to you. What have I done? And that's because when we engage with our sexuality, we're engaging the one flesh mechanism that is meant to bond two into one. Another thing we should think about regarding one flesh union is that children testify to the reality of God's intention in one flesh union, that the two become one. When a man and a woman, through their one flesh union, produce a new life biologically, that child is not just a thing that's born and comes out of their sexual activity. <laughs> listen, listen to what God did. That child is literally made. He is literally or she is literally made of the union. 
of the man and the woman. A child in their DNA is literally an expression of the union of the man and the woman. So mom and dad literally unite in this new life. You, you are not just the child of your bi- biological parents. You are a literal bodily manifestation of their union. This is a mind-blowing confirmation to us of God's one flesh union purpose of marriage. He could have designed procreation a lot of different ways, but he decided, he decided in, in most cases for that child to be an expression of the man and the woman coming together so powerfully that a new life is created of that union. So, kind of summing up the union portion here, the one flesh portion, we're seeing that one flesh union is meant to be sexual, emotional, lifelong, tender, safe, one new life between one man and one woman. We all like the idea, or hopefully, you know, we we can see the beauty in it, but we've experienced many of us understand that that idea has not perfectly manifested itself in this world. So now, because of that, we need to ask a difficult question. What should or can ever separate this one flesh union? In verse 16 we read, For a man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. We know immediately that God is not pleased with divorce. It's not his intention. I spoke at length last week about how the, the way the men were treating their wives, not just in divorce, but how they were treating them, was repugnant to God, and it profaned his faithful heart that was supposed to be expressed in the husband's care for their wives. But we do need to ask, is every divorce a covering of oneself with violence? In other words, are there legitimate reasons that the one union described in verse 15 might be divided? Jesus deals with this very question in Matthew 19. And there we read the following. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give certificate of divorce and to send her away? By the way, Moses didn't command it. He allowed it. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Some of the background on this passage is that there was a debate among the rulers There were two schools of thought, generally speaking. There was a conservative view of divorce, that it should be rare and specifically for very, very uh, bad things, and that there was a literal, there was a liberal, more um, permissive 
attitude about divorce. That there were lots of reasons why a man could divorce his wife. In fact, anything in some school of thought was fine as long as he was displeased with her for some reason. And Jesus says that divorce was never God's intention. It was permitted under the old covenant because their hearts were hard. Because sin was abundant, faithfulness was often very difficult. And as a new covenant church, we might look back at the old covenant and say, also because the Holy Spirit had not been given to the people like he's been given to the church under the old covenant. But like Malachi, notice the Lord takes them back to the beginning and God's purpose for marriage. The two become one flesh. That's God's purpose. He made them one. It's not man's place to undo what God has done. Jesus makes this firm. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then he says something very attention-getting. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you get divorced outside of God's permissions, your marriage never ended. And when you go into a new marriage, your new marriage is adultery because your old marriage is still in effect before God. And that's amazing when we think about, again, what our culture is doing with marriage, what our society, what our country, what our laws are doing with marriage, taking it upon themselves the right to say, this is a marriage and this is not a marriage and this is a marriage and this is not a marriage. And God says, no, no, that's mine. Marriage is mine. You can't just do with it what you want. And more precisely in this text, the Lord is saying to these men, you can't have a, a bad vacation with your wife and send her away and, or just fall out of love or consciously decouple or you've just grown apart and now you just you go and get another wife who's younger and more attractive to you and that's not your wife. Go ahead and go before the courthouse. Go before a judge. That's not your wife. Your wife is back there. I didn't give permission to those lawyers and to that government. But Jesus does allow this exception. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, the one flesh union that has sexual faithfulness uniquely at its core is uniquely vulnerable to sexual unfaithfulness. The one flesh union that has sexual faithfulness uniquely and exclusively at its core is uniquely vulnerable to sexual unfaithfulness. If sex is a holy bond unique to marriage, then sexual immorality uniquely tears at that bond. And this is important, but notice that Jesus says not that adultery is grounds for divorce. He says sexual immorality is grounds for divorce. This is a Greek word, porneo. Porneo. What is it? We need to note in this passage, according to Jesus' own words, it's not specifically adultery because Jesus doesn't use that word here. He uses the word for adultery in the same sentence later, moikeia. That's the Greek word for adultery. 
but he uses it right after pornea in the same verse. Whoever divorces his wife, except for pornea, sexual immorality, and marries another commits moikeia, adultery. In other words, Jesus knew what adultery was. He knew what word to use for it. And in the same sentences, he used adultery for the consequence of an unbiblical divorce. But he uses a different word for what constitutes an allowable divorce. What Panea refers to is serious sexual sin more broad than adultery. It certainly includes adultery, but Jesus intentionally uses a broad term that refers in general to sexual sin. It would have included homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and of great relevance to us today, I believe it's clear from scripture that this can include serious pornography. Though pornography as we know it today is different than in Jesus' day, images and explicit dancers and performers to watch with their eyes was a real industry in those days just as it is today. Men paid to watch women in lustful ways. The Lord says in Matthew 5, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. <clears throat> For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now Jesus in Matthew 5 is not advocating physical dismemberment, but an attitude of the heart that takes this kind of sin with utmost seriousness because it can send a man to hell. And hearing Jesus' words to hear in Matthew 5, it's very difficult to imagine why and how Jesus would not include serious, intentional, repeated pornography as serious sexual immorality. I've done a, a, a fair amount of study on this. R.C. Sproul and Nine Marks and in the Greek and Thomas Schreiner and D.A. Carson and one of the most powerful advocates about this view because of the, the whole dissertation he did for his master's thesis is one of the men who developed covenant eyes. And he wrote, he, he had an intention to write a master's degree because he felt that this idea was liberalizing marriage, making it too easy for women to leave marriages. And he was a developer of covenant eyes, and so he went to do his master's degree on this question. But the more he studied it, the more he looked at the Greek, the words Jesus used, the culture Jesus was in, he, there's no way he could deny that pornography was serious sexual sin. Serious pornography. And... and I'll talk about that in a second, but, but I want to just stop for a second and just say, let's, let's think about this category of sexual sins that Jesus describes. Why are they so uniquely marriage-destroying? And again, it, it has to do with the unique sexual nature of the one flesh union that defines marriage in a way that defines no other kind of relationship we have. D.A. Carson writes, sexual sin has a peculiar relation to Jesus' treatment of Genesis. Because the indissolubility, I said that, I, I've never been able to say that right. <laughs> I've tried it many times in preparing for this message. The indissolubility, the, the inseparableness of marriage, he defends by appealing to those verses from the creation account, is predicated, is based on sexual union, the term one flesh. Sexual promiscuity is, therefore, a de facto exception. It may not necessitate divorce, but permission for divorce and remarriage under circ such circumstances, far from being inconsistent with Jesus' thought, is in perfect harmony with it. 
In other words, because sexual union is peculiarly, peculiarly at the very core of what one flesh means and distinguishes that marriage relationship from all other relationships, when you sin sexually, you attack that unique core. As Carson pointed out, this is far different than saying divorce is required when sexual sins are committed that are serious. God may allow divorce in cases of sexual immorality, but he never commands it. It was never his intention. He deeply loves and gives himself to the wife or the husband who suffers through betrayal and fights for healing. He deeply loves and gives himself to the sinner in marriage who humbles themselves and seeks to repent to him and their wives. He gave his Holy Spirit to marriages in order to preserve them through these kinds of terrible challenges. When we fight to heal and to stay one, we mirror his heart and we image the very gospel of the one who came to save sinners that he wants marriage to image. But there are times where trust is so broken, betrayal is so deep, the forgiveness which is always required may not always include restoration. And God also loves the wife or the husband who cannot find the strength to keep their heart in a marriage covenant which has been broken so grievously by sexual immorality. It doesn't mean there's no love or forgiveness between the man and the woman. But forgiveness and trust are not the same. My mother struggled with alcoholism. I forgave her again and again. I, I, I have hoped that she's in heaven with God, and I love her to this day with all my heart I love her. May God rest her soul. But I, I could not trust her to care for my children in a vehicle or to watch them for extended periods of time. I loved her, I forgave her, but I couldn't trust her with my kids that way. These matters are so painful and they're so hard to discern and they need to be walked through slowly and carefully and prayerfully with a loving community, with good churches to help folks through great seasons of challenges like this. So I don't want to give you the sense that there's some technical manual and you can just find the line and be like, oh, I'm gonna, I get to do this and find the, the you know, code 7-A of the marriage technical manual, what constitutes divorce, what doesn't. We need the Holy Spirit. We need time. We need prayer. We need to cry out to God for help and for discernment. Because marriage is meant to be one forever in this life. There are two other issues regarding divorce and separation that I want to touch on briefly. We may go into further uh, look at them next week. But in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul lists abandonment by a spouse as a reason for divorce as well. When a person just leaves the marriage after a time, you know, he, he, is, he says, I've, you've been called to peace. You can't bind yourself to a marriage where the other person's abandoned you. Uh, he also, in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, 11, implicitly grants the woman, Actually, it's, it's only the woman. He implicitly grants her the right to separate from her husband in what are most likely particularly broken or perhaps physically unsafe conditions. I would like to look yeah, more, more in depth at those cases, but I, I just wanted to refer to them just so you didn't get the impression that those weren't also in Scripture. 
But as we close, I just want to, I want to have, have a few applications for us. First, to our singles. You're single. You're not married. But decide now that you will fight while you are single. Behaviors and attitudes of the heart that destroy your ability to live out the one flesh union that God may have for you. Pornography and fornication and in all their subtle forms as well, the movies we watch, the books we read, these are twisted perversions of the beauty of the one flesh union that belongs to God. They cheapen and degrade and they lie about who God is to his wife, the church. They lie about God's living poem of the gospel that marriage is meant to be. So I just want to appeal to you and appeal to all of us, especially men. Fight these things. Agree with God that they're disgusting, that they're filth, that they're offensive to him, that they're perversions. Fight for a heart that hates it and struggles to turn away. Don't dishonor marriage with how you treat your heart and your body before you're married. To those of us who are married, your body's not your own. Your spouse owns your sexual life. They have an exclusive right to your sexual heart and body. No one else does. And again, a big implication of this is if your spouse wants to know what you look at, what you read, what you watch, they have a right to know that. But also remember that we are all sinners in need of mercy and forgiveness. And when dealing with sexual sins in our marriage, compassion and forgiveness must be fought for. We should fight to rebuild trust, even if in some cases we may find we cannot rebuild it. But even in those cases, forgiveness and mercy are not options. They must be pursued in the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, to all of us as we move to the Lord's Supper. Let's end where we started. A primary, if not the primary reason. And actually, let, let, let me do what I did last week. Give you a second to go through this. You can get the bread ready and get the juice ready. A primary reason why God loves marriage so much the reason why he loves faithfulness so much is because he's worthy of being magnified through the love and faithfulness of husbands and wives. So we can all, single and married, feast on what earthly marriage, though it, it has been broken and damaged, we can all feast on what it was meant to communicate and what by his grace it can still communicate. God's faithful, tender, sacrificial heart towards his bride, you.
whether you're single or married, you. His intention to be perfectly one with you, united to you as one with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and giving his body even to you. This means that every time a husband turns from anger and stops to be tender towards his wife, he is showing, even if it's just the faintest reflection, something of God's heart towards them both. When we hear God command the man, honor your wife, nourish her, cherish her, give her grace, live with her with understanding, we should hear an echo of God's heart towards us, towards all of us. When a wife is able to follow her husband's imperfect leadership out of reverence for Christ, I don't mean his foolish or wicked leadership, I mean when he's trying to serve her through his leadership, when she seeks to follow him, not out of fear, but out of reverence and trust in Christ, we can see something of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit that makes us all able to follow Christ. God loves it when we fight to be faithful to our spouses because it mirrors his faithfulness that's always there. This is the faithfulness we can celebrate no matter what marriage has done or hasn't done to us because we can still remember the Son of God, our husband Redeemer, who left his father's side, gave his body to us, his bride, poured out his blood for us, his bride, united his very spirit with us, his bride, in everlasting covenant to be faithful to us forever. We are able to be with him naked and unashamed because not only does he already know all our shame, but he has taken all of our shame upon himself and canceled it forever. Past shame, present shame, future shame. That's what our husband redeemer has done for us. The sins you committed yesterday, he has taken them away from you. The sins you're going to commit today, he has taken them away from you. The sins you will commit tomorrow, he has taken the shame away from you and conquered it all when he said to his wife, it is finished. He meant it. Let's celebrate him now. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and breaking it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you. This is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup and giving it to his disciples, he said, take this all of you and drink from it. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do this, do it in memory of me.
Let me pray for us. Lord, this is such a hard subject. Things have gone so wrong with us at our very core that this thing that you meant to be beautiful and sustaining and nourishing and joy-giving, joy-giving, often has become something else to us, in us, and through us. But Lord, you're not surprised by any of this. You're not too small a God to redeem any of this. Our sexual sin, just like any other sin, is not too big for you. So we pray for your mercy, God, to be at work in our church community, to be at work in everyone here listening this morning, to heal, to mend, to clean, to give grace, for power to walk in new ways, ways empowered and sustained by your very spirit living inside us as our husband redeemer. Redeem us as you will and as you are. Continue to redeem us, including our sexuality. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.